This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. Yeah, so I think just talking with people, like I've talked to people a little bit at my church about conspiracy theories, and actually before the book even came out, and um, you know, some were um, kind of the question was, well, what are you going to be for or against them? You know, sort of this stark contrast, and I think you know, at least some of the chapters and in our own treatment, we're trying to be more neutral about the truth because some, I mean, there have been conspiracies right in the Mm -hmm. past that we know. Um, And then there are theories now, I mean, the title of book QAnon, that's a prevalent one. Um, And I think, I mean, it looks like large numbers of Christians and in particular evangelical Christians believe at least some of the claims. And so I think that that's, it's interesting. I think there's overlap in religious language, you know, in QAnon. And so when you start talking mm. about spiritual warfare and the, a battle of good and evil, those things resonate with Christians because that those are elements of our kind of our view of reality. But I think the, the hardest thing to do, and it's like a lot of our political conversation, is just to like start talking about publicly available evidence, right? And it, mm-hmm. feel, it feels like we're... And look, we all are like this to a degree because we're human, but there's this resistance to evidence against our view. Um, and so sometimes it can feel like you don't have enough common ground to even have a, kind of a fruitful discussion. So part of what we want to do in the book and with the contributors is, is, is maybe help people do that, right? To actually engage people who are thinking about conspiracy theories or who are kind of into some of them. So that's the big picture stuff. I Yeah, it, it does seem like conspiracy mindsets, and, and again, uh, you know, we've talked about these things in the past, but things like, um, I just believe this and anything, any kind of evidence that could dissuade me from believing this then gets counted as part of the conspiracy or mm-hmm. that, you know, I'd have to be naive uh, to believe that. Um, I mean, when you talk about conspiracies, you're really talking about how do we know things and how do we know them confidently, right? Um, right. And you think, do you think there's some kind of uh, detachment from, I think of science as a really good example of knowing very discrete, very particular things very well, um, you know, with scrutiny and typically on a good day, a scientist is going to let reality kick back. You know, what counts as evidence is when the, when the research doesn't go as they expected. And so reality kicks back in some way and they just kind of have to deal with that. That also counts on, you know, scientists being ethical and, uh, working in larger communities in ethical ways and believing in objective reality and all kinds of interesting things. Um, but I, I would suspect that people who are not involved in those kind of enterprises of like interacting with reality in very detailed ways would be more susceptible to believing in a conspiracy theory. Is that naive of me? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think to a degree, yeah. I think it has more to do with like the individual's maybe just our intellectual habits or, you know, it's kind of the way we approach like what we believe. And if we're, you know, if you've been, I mean, this for Christians, if you've been brought up in an environment, maybe in a church or some kind of ministry setting where questions were 
encouraged or at least not discouraged and people were mm. you know if you had questions people would engage you you know about i mean just the classic things that you would wonder about the nature and authority of the bible or why god allows suffering those kind of things it seems like that kind of i guess formation is a way to think about it that sort of the way that you yeah the way that your personality and intellectual virtues and vices and moral virtues and vices have developed you're going to be more open to 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 responding like as you said when reality kicks back a little bit or at least that it's potentially doing so but i think if we're kind of locked in to our commitments and which is of course is important to be committed to you know certain beliefs and things especially as a christian that's part of who we are but i think when we just make everything non-negotiable and clear uh, and then anybody who disagrees with me about not just big questions, but, you know, really particular things that have been a lot of disagreement past and present on that kind of shapes you in a way that maybe you're, you're not as attuned to evidence or it's easier to disregard evidence because it doesn't fit in the framework you've already got. And so, yeah, I do think that that's important. Um, and as we have those kind of habits, so you, you could be a scientist or you could be, a friend of mine who's an electrician who reads a lot of, you know, sort of Christian thought. I mean, does, that's more of your kind of how you've been shaped and how you approach things. Mm-hmm. That's going to, of course, shape how you deal with these things. And then, and I think the emotional thing too is a part of it. And maybe we'll talk about this some, but people seeking to have emotional needs met, whether it's politics or conspiracy theories, right? It kind of, it, I think it feeds kind of the worst parts of our nature. Like I'm in the know, you know, I'm not deceived like everybody else. Um, there's something special about me because I can ask, you know, I can see past and see what's really going on. I'm not fooled like a lot of other people that, that can kind of feed our pride and be, be one reason too, that some get involved. Yeah. I, you know, and maybe it's circular reasoning, but, uh, certainly psychological evidence uh, suggests that even a trained psychologist or a chemist can can have very good ways of knowing in that discrete field and then turn around in other areas of life uh, and not apply those same techniques as well and uh, for thinking. Um, I first ran into conspiracy theories. So I think I'm, I'm now discovering probably a lot of people who wrote essays in this book um, all had like a running document of a, a, a book proposal for writing on conspiracy. Cause I did too. I had a, like, you know, a three page book proposal on writing about conspiracies. And eventually I just said, it's not worth it. It's too much of an uphill battle. Anything you say, you're only talking to the masses, but I ran into this in seminary with a couple of guys that were in my group that I thought were really smart and really reasonable people. And then all of a sudden we started talking about some, you know, basic, I think 25 years ago, the JFK thing had resurfaced with the Oliver Stone movie. And, um, and I just remember looking at them going like, really you guys? Um, and, and when I kind of pushed back on them on some things, the, the main reaction was kind of like, well, you know, it's, what's the harm in believing these things. And so, uh, I, I really do wonder what is, what is the harm in believing in conspiracy theories? Yeah. I mean, you can take I mean, the, the easier cases are when, you know, kind of the way out there things that people believe. So it's, month or two ago, you know, the father that killed his own children because mm-hmm. he was convinced they were lizard people. Right. Now, the vast majority of people that by aspects of QAnon, for example, they're not, that's not them. But yeah, I think the harm can be, uh, well, look, I mean, I mean, just like, you know, we talked about, or I talked about as our upbringing and kind of how we're formed and shaped over the years, 
influences how we view conspiracy theories, you know, positively or negatively, you know, it can go the other way. So if I start developing maybe bad habits of like believing things that don't have good yeah. evidence, and I mean evidence really broadly, not just what the scientist does, but all, you know, any, any kind of source of belief and evidence that supports it. Yeah, you can, that can start damaging you. Um, I mean, I've, I've talked with more than one person who a uh, family member or a friend has ended some of this stuff and it, it it's really does damage to the relationships, mm-hmm. right? So, so churches, right? I think, I think in church, this is one thing, one of the reasons that my co-editor Greg Bach and I actually decided to do the book is, is a concern for the witness of the church and society, right? So if let's say I'm way into some conspiracy theory and my neighbor's skeptical um, and maybe, and right, let's say rightly so, like the conspiracy theory is just false. You know, one day I'm telling him about, you know, the truth about JFK that right. nobody knows or QAnon and the next day I'm telling him that Jesus rose from the dead. You know, I want, I want my neighbors or people I'm around to see me as a reliable, trustworthy sort of witness to the truth generally. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's bad. I think it can, and it brings disunity in the church for sure. That's another harmful thing um, mm-hmm. to conspiracy theories. And I think we just start to look for, it just seems to me as we, as I've thought about this the past couple of years that we kind of start looking for things from conspiracy theories that we should find not only in Christ, but in our, you know, our community uh, and in our church, right. in mm. those relationships. So deeper connections with others, a, a unity of purpose and those kind of things and kind of a big story to fit our lives in. Um, mm. So those are some of the things that jumped to mind. Oh yeah. That's interesting. Um, QAnon, I want to go back to that real quick because the, it's in the title of the book, QAnon, The Cross. Is that what it, QAnon? QAnon, Chaos and the Cross. That's yeah. right. QAnon, Chaos yeah. and the Cross. It's a collection of essays from various scholars on conspiracy thinking. Um, I mean, already I wonder, you know, if like 16-year-olds even know what QAnon is. Uh, you know, yeah. I can already feel it. I'm going to be explaining to freshmen in a few years, you know, what QAnon was, and they're going to be looking at me like, what are you talking about? People believe this? <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's hope. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So why? Oh, yeah. Let's hope. Um, why do you think that one? Uh, and quite honestly, I'm pretty ignorant of the actual ins and outs of QAnon outside of it. There was somebody producing documents saying that they had secret information and yeah. tied to kind of eschatological beliefs of the return and Donald Trump. Uh, what is what does that do for people? Cause that one, like for me, it was like outside of the box of my right. normal friends having conspiracy mindset. Yeah. And it's, it's not one that like, I can't think of anyone I've talked to. Well, actually I can, but in general, not very many people I know are like all into Q and all that kind of mm-hmm. thing. And I think, you know, our original title was just Christianity and conspiracy theories, but you know, that's kind of, boring uh, <laughs> right and so given the and i actually was concerned about the title because i thought maybe the QAnon thing would die out but not yet um so the book really it, it comes up a lot because that's kind of the most prominent current one but yeah QAnon is basically like you said the idea of this person i think it was 2017 dropped the stuff on 4chan and mm. kind of pushing the bounds of my internet understanding you know but just kind of that i've heard and of 4chan and HM. yeah me too yeah. yeah me too and so i think kind of place where this stuff can happen but insider knowledge but basically the the big idea is there's like this group or cabal of pedophiles and they kind of control you know it's related to the idea about the deep state 
And it's made up of primarily of uh, well, Democratic politicians, people in the news and entertainment industry. Um, Do they yeah, ever say just, the Jews? Because that feels like it would be right in there as well. Yeah, I don't. That's off the top of my head. I can't. I don't think it so. It feels like the protocols of uh, of Zion and the kind of anti-Semitic tropes from you know the 1920s in Russia. Yeah, I mean, there's the. Yeah, there's the sort. Yeah, the pedophile stuff, the controlling this. Yeah, they're they're at the levers of government, right? right controlling right. what's really going on. Um, and then you know, in more recently, about them like drinking the blood of infants to get some kind of particular component of their blood. You know, I mean, just all the kind of, that kind of thing. Which which was a, a conspiracy in the Roman Empire about Christians. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. so, yeah. yeah little of yeah. little ironic <laughs> twist. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, things come back around sometimes in different forms, but yeah. And so then the idea would be the idea was that Donald Trump is sort of going to um, unearth the truth. You know, so that that's the connection between Trump and QAnon, and that there would be uh, this thing I think called the storm. Mm. Where all these people, the truth would be, would be brought out, and these people would be there'd be mass arrests of all these people, um, mm. and so everybody could see it's true. And then, oh, what's the second one? I want to say it's the awakening, but it's not. That might not be right. That um, sounds right. It's something like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Where basically everybody would see the cue was right, um, and then there, there's like this ushering in of utopia of some sort when we all, you know the evil has been sort of purged from the government and society and, and Trump kind of leads us to this. And I think the good Lord, that, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it's one of those things like, you know, I, I, I wasn't raised uh hardcore, like I wasn't really raised Christian and I kind of came into yeah. it when I was 20. I think you around the same you, in college, like you did. And, and I got exposed to the left behind books. And I just remember thinking like, okay, this is a little bit ridiculous. And why do people believe this? And I went to seminary and then found out like, most Christians throughout history have not believed something. So then I was really yeah. excited that, that this is not actually a Christian thing. It's a bizarre yeah. American thing about the rapture, et cetera. Um, yeah. but, uh, but it does kind of, again, this sounds very much like the Nikolai story and left. Be if you know, the left behind the singular world leader, that's going to mm -hmm. like, you know, manipulate everybody into this final devilish plan. Like what the heck? How, I mean, you know, I've, I've only been on this earth 48 years, but I'm looking, I'm hearing this thinking like this goes beyond uh, whether the earth is flat or who shot JFK. Um, mm -hmm. How do people get in this position where they're, where they're entertaining this as possible truth? Yeah. And that's a good question. It just seems, which is, you know, what you always say on podcasts, but, um, but yeah, I think we, that's one thing that would be good. Like we, we tried a lot to get a psychologist. Mm. Um, we just couldn't find anybody that, you know, had the time or could do it right. within our, but yeah, I mean, I would say, yeah, I mean, it seems to me like questions of, well, maybe for Christians, right. Maybe this is something that can make at least some of us more susceptible to a degree is that, I mean, I think there's a part of us, of our, you know, sort of broadly speaking, a biblical view of reality, or just just take Christian more generally, right? That, that things aren't what they seem, right? Cause sometimes mm -hmm. you look at the world, you know, and you just think, how can this be the pro? You know, a good God made this world, right. um, or or we think there, you know, are things in the in the spiritual or non, you know, immaterial realm affect things in the material realm, and vice versa. And so there can be some of a 
And that's really what's what runs through a lot of conspiracy theories, not just QAnon, but more generally, is mm. things aren't what they seem, right? Mm. Things, and so people that think things are the way they appear, they're being fooled, and there's something really deeper going on. But then I think too, yeah, I guess I'm from within that Christian framework. I just think there's this deeper need, yeah, to be a part of something greater than yourself. And I just wonder if we're kind of like looking for other wells to drink from so to speak mm. instead of the right one right mm. and i think i think that's a big part of it too yeah it's it's not living water that's for sure yeah <laughs> um i i also worry too and uh, maybe it's you know when i worked as a pastor um you kind of get to see the backside of mental health issues in the church mm. uh, uh, kind of what's really going on in some people's lives um and i feel like you know if if our goal as a community is to do things that help people to flourish and maybe don't harm the lowest common denominator, you know, people at their most vulnerable, I really do think about the people with mental health issues who are at a vulnerable moment. And then they see kind of who they see mentally healthy people buying into some of these conspiracy theories. And that seems to like, uh, draw a line for them that like, Oh, we're crossing that line. Okay, great. You know? And then for me, it's, it feels like it doesn't care about the people who are uh, there are vulnerable with their mental health. They'll like, you know, they'll just, they're going to be crazy no matter what, you know, I don't know what the thinking is there or right. they don't think about it. Yeah. That's a good um, thought. I had, actually hadn't thought about that before because yeah, you can think, I mean, with certain sort of mental health issues, you'd be more susceptible to the, to conspiratorial thinking, obviously. Right. And yeah. so then it's, yeah, like you're saying, it's like, well, yeah, you, you know, this you got- isn't a problem. This is actually what's going on. So yeah, yeah, I care for the community in that way. Um, yeah, that kind of, um, you know, the typical bipolar it's start, or schizophrenic starting to express itself. So they self-medicate with weed, uh, which then causes conspiratorial mindset to go kind of off the rails. And then the next thing you know, they're picking up these things in their own. I mean, this is, I think, what's dangerous in their own Christian communities. Yeah. They can be picking up these things. And that's what they're, you know, going to do, you know, to act on in some way against themselves or against other people. It just seems like a very haphazard way to like socially navigate, especially when conspiracy thinking is all fundamentally developed within a community or within communities. And mm-hmm. um, they're all trusting different people. So on the trust issue, how do you, I mean, do you have a technique for walking people off the ledge? Because I mean, it really is like, you've got your, you know, well, you haven't done your research or yeah, you've got your sources or as you know, I realized to say, well, the national institutes of health say, and they're like, well, a government agency, you're like, like you've, you've lost right off the bat. Yeah. Um, so what are some ways of, and again, it's, it's not like they're us who are the noble, you know, epistemic heroes that know everything mm-hmm. truly and correctly that are trying to save these fools. But trying to just engage brothers and sisters in a real conversation about what the, the real world is like. Right. Yeah. And I think what you just said is the key starting point. And I've, I've shared this on a few, uh, a few places now, but yeah. So for me, definitely tend to be much more skeptical of claims about conspiracies. Um, and I can think we'll get to, yeah, maybe cause I just think publicly available evidence is the key, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's what you should focus on. But yeah, I, th- but, but then for me, it's like, yeah, I'm not the, I can't, I mean, I'm a philosophy professor, so of course I've got opinions about everything, right. but, um, but learning, you know, I've been working and writing about humility a lot the past 15 years in different ways. And so actually trying to 
put that to, into practice in my life, and this is a good example where we all could, right? Because if we're more, it's just easy to think, well, that they're, they're quote crazy or, you know, that when I don't want to talk to that guy, he's like into this weird conspiracy theory stuff, but it's our, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ, especially we, we need to engage them. And I'm thinking more in your church. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to worry about arguing with somebody that I don't know on Twitter about right, QAnon, right. but, but my friend or, you know, fellow church member. Yeah. Um, pray for the person on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then move on. Yeah, yeah. pray and don't argue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's, I think that, so humbling ourselves is step one. And if I'm going in just, I mean, there's good evidence. And a couple one of the professors, a communication professor talks about this in the book that we can think that when we've got these things inside of us, these attitudes, like sort of a disdain or even contempt or anger or pride that that we can kind of set them aside and but as we communicate but it looks like they those things tend to bleed out into mm-hmm. our actual communication so that's a good starting point because people can yeah it's, that that will happen but yeah it's just like the hard work of engaging and asking good questions and, and so if somebody says something i think yeah some of those basic laws of communication where you're sitting down kind of like they tell you to do in premarital counseling. Well, mm-hmm. here's what I, you know, what do you, so I might just say now, what, what, what's something that kind of led you to think this is really going on? Like we're, you know, what evidence or, you know, just asking them like how they got where they are mm-hmm. to believe this. And then, you know, kind of saying back, here's what I heard you say, trying to find areas of agreement, right? Because you, you don't want to, th- I mean, I don't want to say, look, all institutions are always trustworthy because that's not true right. either, right? They're fallen, you know, the institutions and those things are fallen. So you, that's important to kind of, yeah, I can see where in history institutions have failed us, past and present. But then maybe saying like, oh, well, here's one thing maybe I, I don't understand, or maybe here's something I disagree about. Um, you know, what do you think about that? So. I guess if if I was going to invest time in this, as I said, to be with somebody that I have a relationship with, family, friend, church, and then I, I would want, I would ask them, well, give me something to read or give me some, you know, a video, whatever it is that you think really makes the case well, and then I would read it, think about it, and do the same to them. And even if they're not willing to like think through and talk through counter arguments or counter evidence, I'm not sure where you go from there. Besides just, you know. Because if somebody's not willing to engage in that way, then I'm not sure how it's going to be fruitful. Then you just love them and yeah. engage, you know, and don't worry about this. It might be that they just needed a friend to take them seriously, and that's that's well, the thing that gets them going some in some different direction, right? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, I think even, okay, so if you, I'm thinking within the church context because it's the one I Mm -hmm. care about most here, but um, if you have a church that you have a subset that has habituated themselves in the conspiracy, you know, entertaining conspiracies. um, Yeah. I mean, I think you have something like this in the garden, right? That that the serpent without saying so much is basically saying, hey, God actually is trying to hold you back from, you know, these things. And yeah. and so you have people who are entertaining and they're habituating that entertainment. It has to bleed over also into looking at any power structure, right? So they're going to look at the church and say like, oh, everything. And of course, once you start thinking that about people, everything that they're doing, everything that they're doing has a perverse incentive or an ulterior motive. It's really hard to convince somebody otherwise. In fact, it, it might be actually impossible to convince somebody otherwise. Um, 
So if you were pastoring a church, what would your leadership look like that would kind of buffer against um, uh, conspiracy, you know, conspiracies floating around about you and, you know, the elders, deacons or board or whatever you have? uh, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you want to sort of model and, and encourage just good, yeah, I mean, what we would call epistemic practices are just good, good sort of ways of approaching issues, belief, knowledge, mm-hmm. truth, right? So you're, you're modeling openness to questions to counter evidence, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, you know, even within, like, say, your denominational distinctives, so whether, you know, whatever those might be, you don't just say, you know, I mean, this goes a lot, I mean, just to pick an, an issue that keeps flaring up online and in real life, um, you know, stuff about gender, right? Mm-hmm. Gender roles in the church comes up. And so some people are just like, you either believe what we do about this or you don't think the Bible is reliable, right? Right. Or there's this other and both sides are saying it. that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, no no one's immune to this, yeah. you know, whether it's politics or, or theology. But instead of saying, well, this is what we believe. Here's why these people take the Bible just as seriously as us. We think they're mistaken, but, right. you know, so I think that can help. Mm. Uh, transparency. I mean, yeah. if, if it's concerns about the leadership, then yeah, as much transparency as possible in terms of who's making decisions and why, you know, different church organizations and structures will be different. I'm actually a member of a PCA church right mm-hmm. now, um, church plant. So that's a little more um, like of a, there's a hierarchy and sort of a, a uh, it's not a congregationalist, I guess. Right. Yeah. So kind of can go up the chain <laughs> to deal with issues, but that strikes me as important. And churches aren't always good at that, especially, I mean, that's the, gosh, you think about the stuff that's happened even in the last 10 years in terms of abuse and abuse of power and sexual right. abuse and exploitation. It's because of lack of transparency, lack of accountability, yep. trying to cover, cover up for people because you think it's in the interest of the gospel or the church or the kingdom. And it's just not. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing how people will often cover um, thinking, Oh, well, this will hurt people who might have feeble faith, you know, they put their trust in this pastor or whatever. And if people find out, <laughs> and I think the, I'm like, well, how do you think they're going to feel when they eventually do find out and find out you were covering that whole time? Like, um, yeah, there, there's a probably more substantial problem there over the hill. Um, that, yeah, that for sure. About. Yeah. And I do know the PCA uh, only cause I know it pre- that denomination pretty well. They don't even require an annual meeting where you disclose transparently, you know, the decisions and, it's not even their book of church order. I think mm. that would be my first sign is this, if somebody's not being transparent, you're not seeing, you know, if the church doesn't see the budget, they're not hearing why they made certain decisions. Um, yeah. Not that the church has to hear those things, but um, I don't think you can afford to build trust without hearing those things now uh, yeah. as a church. Um, and so how do we, um, you know, you think about the good habits uh if you had somebody sit in front, a young man, young woman, you're a college professor like me, you probably get people in your office mm-hmm. and they just say, look, I want to build the right habits. We call them epistemic habits, which means habits of how we know things well. Um, what, Where do I start? What are the three things I should be doing now to make sure I'm not getting into bad mental space? Yeah, I would probably start out with actually looking at... I mean, for me, you know, intellectual humility is a big one. I think that's a big problem across the spectrum, not just with conspiracy theory, but I mean, just everything these days. Right? Yeah. Nobody wants to, we don't want to admit our own fallibility, our own limits. We don't want to admit when we're wrong. We don't, I mean, it just, 
So that would be an important first habit. And what I mean by that, yeah, just really realizing that we're limited, we're fallible, accepting that right now, and this of course goes for all human beings, there are things I believe that are false, right? Mm-hmm. Because I'm a fallible as a knower. Um, I would say cultivating a, a love for truth and wisdom, right? And that's going to go hand in hand with humility, because if I really do love the truth and ultimately that ends up being, you know, Christ who is the truth, but in the wisdom of Christ, that's going to guide, if that's guiding me rather than just my desires or my fears or my insecurities or, um, could he, and desires could be brought, you know, for some people it has to do with power or money for others. It's just, you know, feelings of security. Hmm. Um, so, so love of truth and, and wisdom, humility, and I think these days I might, with my students, I would want to add, gosh, I guess intellectual courage mm. is what jumps to mind because, and yeah, for Christians, it's being willing to say what you think and why, maybe in a setting where it's not going to be, you know, where you're in the minority, so to speak. Yeah. God's not but dead, I think, right? I saw that movie. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you're a philosophy professor. Yeah, you are the demon right. of that movie. Yeah, exactly. I'm the only, Yeah. <clears throat> That's right. Um, I mean, some people will hear that intellectual courage is like, yes, yeah, stand up and tell everybody why they're wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking more, uh, well, I teach at a public university. So, so I think what I see a lot of students is maybe, you know, the other extreme, like they're afraid to say anything that people aren't going to like. Or Oh, yes. Um, now, I wish there were you know, some students I've had, I wish they would maybe be a little more. <laughs> Cork it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Maybe have some self-awareness. Yeah. But, it seems to me like even in the past three or four years, more trouble getting students to discuss things in class. And oh, from yes. what I can gather, it's oh, yeah. because they're they're afraid of offending people or not people not liking them. Yeah. Or um, so, I, yeah, I mean, courage in the sense of yeah, there are times not. I mean, I had professors who were not as not the God's not dead thing, but you know, were. I mean, I, I actually kept a little journal of things professors would say. And, you know, there was no one professor that was horrible, but just these things that run through it. So, yeah, it's being willing to say what you think and why. But doing that humbly and openly, yeah. not aggressively and confrontationally. But yeah, courage. And I think of courage going along with humility. Like intellectual courage is like being willing to submit even my most cherished beliefs to scrutiny, right? And being willing to change them. Um, okay. Now, for me, I'm 54. I can't imagine like not being a Christian. Like those are things that, that I'm committed to all the way down. I mean, it would take, I can't imagine, I mean, radic something. Right. Yeah. Big thing for me to change that. I can't imagine doing that. I mean, I'm, I'm in for life, you know, but, but beyond some of those core, you know, maybe what Lewis would call mere Christianity, whatever that is, you know, my, the more fringe theological beliefs, my political beliefs, beliefs about, a lot of other things just got to be more willing and open to change mm-hmm. um, and being responsive to evidence and just being willing to suspend. I, you know, I think I would talk about all these things with someone like that in the context of these virtues, being willing just to say, you know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what I believe about that. I see some good evidence on this side, some on the other side. So I'm just going to suspend, suspend judgment. Or maybe I, I hold this belief, but, I'm, but not too strongly because mm-hmm. I see, you know, a strong counter argument. Um, those are the kind of things that I would say. Which, I mean, just even a, a friend of mine who's a psychologist pointed out that 
neurologically, that's actually very difficult for a young man or woman to do, especially young men mm-hmm. who their frontal cortex is still developing. That, that, that There really is a need for kind of an emotional need for black and white and clarity, and they have more yeah. trouble with gray at that age than they will later. Um, I think it's very easy as an older person to go like, you know what, I've thought about that for two decades, and I still don't know what I think about that, you know. Yeah. Uh, nothing frustrates, uh, you know, a freshman more than that. Um, the, and I, I hear a lot of Dallas Willard pouring, uh, pouring through and what you're saying. I know he's been a big influence on you and as well, like, um, that's, he's the first philosopher I try to push off on people like read this guy and then you can read everybody else correctly. Um, the, the love of truth and wisdom, um, I think that's good. And I, and I think what I'm seeing, I'm seeing everything you just said in the classroom, same thing for me, very, you know, like. Mm when you go on Twitter or Instagram and you feel, and you realize your mousy student actually has really hot takes on everything. Um, but they won't say a thing in front of their classmates. Right. Um, so I do wonder if there's a love of truth and wisdom lacking also about themselves. Uh, I really try to push students to hear critical feedback about themselves as, you know, like take college as a special time where nobody is firing you and not telling you why, you know, um, yeah. but they actually, you know, you're getting good feedback about your, uh, yourself, uh, and learned a way to, to put away the voices that say you go girl. Um, and mm-hmm. kind of like, and you know, you and I get student evaluations every semester and I feel like it doesn't matter how well I've done in a semester. There's always some student, I teach Bible. So obviously it's a little, gets a little spicier with some students, but, um, yeah. you know, like, uh, they have something very mean or hateful or just really cutting to say. And so that's, that's my most spiritual moment is I have to pray before I read student evaluations. And, Mm. but I also think to myself, uh, something they say is probably true (laughs) and I, I need to hear the truth despite everything else. So I, uh, I'm wondering if that, that you talked about the, the less self-aware student you wish would cork it. Can we connect these things, these attributes that you just outlined with also this kind of susceptibility to conspiracy, bad conspiracy thinking, if we can talk about versus like proper, Mm -hmm. you know, there are conspiracies we should be thinking about. Right. Right. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I mean, I I would connect up the the humility aspect to this because I think, so maybe one question to ask, and I wrote about this in my chapter, somebody else had said it, I don't remember where, and I just thought it was really wise, is that if I step back and look at like all the, so let's say I buy into the conspiratorial thinking, and so I look at, here's three or four conspiracy theories I believe, and if those, if sort of the beliefs and the output, so to speak, of those theories matches up with my sort of the things I already believe mm. about God or politics or whatever, that might, that's a red flag, right? Because right. then it looks like I'm just finding conspiracies that sort of feed into my set of beliefs that I have now. Right. And they're, they're not, as you put back at the beginning, you know, they're, I'm not allowing reality to sort of kick back. Mm. I'm just taking in the stuff that already fits where I'm at. So that's one thing. And just, man, just realizing we're limited. Like you can't, I mean, when you think about the past three or four years, individual and a lot of it's online but i've had discussions with people too that they've got really firmly held beliefs about climatology um foreign international relations immunology efficacy of masks all of my um, same expertises as well (laughs) yeah exactly the you know the constitution and voting machine i mean every you know nobody can know you can have, I mean, I've got opinions about that stuff, but I try to hold it loosely because I just, well, I don't spend a lot of time with it, but here and there I have as I've engaged people, but 
man, there's just, you can't know. <laughs> there's, you just don't know about all that stuff. Right. There's just no way, no matter how much of, you know, quote unquote, our own research we do. Um, it's just beyond the pale. So, or beyond our, our abilities to know. So I think that's important. And then, yeah, maybe, I mean, there's some, and this is for all of us, not just conspiracy thing, but in general, just being willing, whether it's with close friends or, you know, for Christians with a, an openness to God and the spirit, like, do I really love the truth? Like I've had to think, I've had to think about that a lot more, both with this book. And I wrote a book on um, guns and ethics that came out in 2020. And as I was reading and writing that for that book and then engaging with people after I had to constantly like that initial, you know, when you have a view about a controversial issue, your initial response is sort of one of, of defensiveness. And I had to just think, am I actually listening to evidence or am mm. I just saying this can't be right? And I got to figure out why um, that's a tough line to walk. Yeah. And, and so I think loving a truth, loving truth enough, enough to admit when we're wrong, you know, that's the humility and, and love go hand in hand. And yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it's kind of weird. Like the courage thing, like we hear a lot these days, especially among more conservative Christians about having the courage to stand up for your beliefs in society, you know, think all the controversial, controversial issues. But I think too, sometimes there's a courage of being willing to stand up, stand up for your beliefs that maybe, yeah, I mean, just, I don't know how to put this. Um, there's like a Christian subculture. And so sometimes it's the courage of being saying, no, I, I think maybe this isn't right. Or here's, you know, here's maybe what I think, mm. you know, New Testament, you know, the Sermon on the Mount would have us do in the situation mm. versus kind of an Americanized version of Christianity. So that's important too. Yeah. I mean, standing up for the truth in a church means that something in the church is wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's chock full of sinners who are, you know, American cultists in their religious practices. And yeah, that's, yeah. it's going to be, it's going to be bound to happen. And that's not just American. That's, you know, I've, I've worked in the British church as well. Like there's mm -hmm. always some cultural uh, cancer uh, that is proliferating yeah. in the, in the quote unquote Christianity of that regional church. So um, I finally, I did, you know, we said humility a lot here and I, I just want to mm -hmm. point out like, um, you know, I'm thinking of first Peter five, one of my favorite passages there, um, kind of that humble yourselves, all of you clothe yourselves in humility towards one another. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I just now realized I have always read that as including intellectual humility, like how we know things. But mm -hmm. I'm I'm also realizing that most Christians might not read it that way. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I mean, can you think? And this is putting you on the spot. So if you don't have anything, that's fine. Um, can you think of somewhere where like Jesus, Paul, John, James, Jude, somebody showed intellectual humility? Mm. Yeah, that's good. I think. I mean, look. <laughs> just Paul's conversion and what he did going from who he was to who he became. I mean that there's an intellectual humility. Like I, per, I was like persecuting these people, killing them because I thought they were perverting the true faith. And then <laughs> he had the Damascus conversion and actually gave his life to him. I mean, that's a radical right, right. humility. Somebody who, and yeah, you can say, well, Jesus met him. I mean, he had like a, like Jesus like showed up, but well, yeah, but then, I mean, the disciples show it over time. I think they showed humility. They had to show humility when they they all said, "Oh, we'll never leave you." And then they all, you know, they all left or betrayed him. And then, and then they had when he they had to come back and follow him and um, live with that. You know, Peter had to live with his um, hmm. denial of Christ. Yeah, actually, yeah. I, so I, I I teach this all the time. Um, 
if you were going to tell a story about you where you were on the inside track with this God incarnate and the savior and redeemer of the entire cosmos, who would tell the story about themselves the way they're told in the gospels? I mean, if the, if the, yeah. the apostles are, you know, the source material for the gospels largely. Yeah. Um, and especially like Mark, which is supposedly from Peter's preaching. Mark is the mm-hmm. most negative of all of them. So even the, the gospels themselves are artifacts of intellectual humility. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah I hadn't thought about it. I hadn't either that, until you said that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's why these yeah. discussions are so fun. Yeah, that's right. Things come up that yeah, that aren't just about the issue. But yeah, I mean this goes back to the Willard stuff. It's like you can have the discussions and then like, okay, here's something I can take away in my spiritual life or just to appreciate new about the Bible or mm. about you know, about God or um, the body of Christ. So yeah, and I think the other thing too for me it's been I've been reading a lot more Bonhoeffer recently. Mm. I've been trying to just his ethics this summer and stuff about his ethics. And just, there's something there too, like that he, that same kind of, it, it took humility and courage for him to do what he did with the confessing church mm. and to, to risk his own life to go. I mean, he could have just stayed in the United States and he went back. And so I think in our own setting, it's being willing to, yeah, in your, even if it's within the church, right. To say, no, I don't, I, I think this is wrong and here's why, but we've got to learn to do that in ways where we can still foster love and community and mm-hmm. unity as much as is possible. Um, I mean, cause I, I've had the experience I'm politically independent. So I voted across, you know, I voted for Democrats, Republicans. I think one time I voted for some, I don't even remember some random third party person in the nineties, but, but I've had conversations with people where they where I where when I said some like I think I, I ended up voting for a Democrat for governor. This is 2016 in Kentucky, and somebody and they looked at me like I just denied Christ. Right. I'm like, we can have these disagreements, right? And yeah. So anyway, mm-hmm. I just think I think the stuff that we've talked about has obvious implications for how we deal with politics right now as Christians, and then just more broadly as as communities trying to learn and know and actually follow, you know, that what's true and love God, love our neighbors ourselves. It's got implications all through that. Yeah. We, we didn't talk about the media issue, but I, I do think, cause I work with journalism professors and I, I, I work, I've been working in New York city for the last 12 years and, you know, I've done some light media work and, uh, and what I've realized also, um, is that there, there is a difference between people who follow the rules of journalism like, I mean, you know, when they publish something in the New York Times, it has been vetted by many people yeah. and lawyers, and they're not just cranking out nonsense uh, over there. Whether you agree with their perspective or the way they reported it is a different question. Um, but I do think we have to find, you know, I, I often find that people who come in hot and heavy on conspiracies are usually getting getting to the conspiracy through streams of YouTube or TikTok or something else. Mm-hmm. Um and again, that doesn't mean that it's a lie or it's wrong. I mean, there might be something to it. Maybe that's the way, you know, that's the way they have to get around the conventional means. But um, but there is there is kind of a diet of media uh, and inf- these public sources of information. There's a diet that can't just be, we can't be eating cheeseburgers all day long, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, that's really important. I think. You know, there are the fact checking things that you can do. People, some people are skeptical of those, but man, I just think that we have to have to try to either. I mean, I guess I've like in recent last few years, I still keep up with the news, but I've tried to limit my input mm-hmm. of it because just just so much of it is geared to sort of the clickbait 
certification, if, you can, if that's a word of, <laughs> of news. and It's a thing, whether yeah. it's a word or not. It's definitely a yeah, thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah, I think reading, I mean, I try to read more local stuff, right? Mm. Maybe the lo- we actually, we get the local newspaper. and um, But I think, too, yeah, look, of course, those sort, no source is infallible but, but if, of news. But, yeah, the, if there's more vetting and, and some, te- you know, having a little broader diet can help, too. Um, I used to, in a critical thinking class with my students, I still remember this video. It was of the same event. And I had like, this is back when Bill O'Reilly was still on Fox, like he had him describe it. And then I can't remember who the, who the other side, it was, you know, maybe someone on MSNBC, but just radically different descriptions of the same exact event. And then, you know, something's going on uh, with that. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean the truth is in the middle either. Right. I mean, there could, that's right. That's yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Mike Austin, thank you very much for this book, QAnon, Chaos, and the Cross. Uh, and it's a collection of essays from various scholars uh, of various sorts on uh, conspiracies and how Christians should think about them. Um, and thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed the discussion. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.